Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist, a podcast where we discuss hope in the climate space with amazing guest speakers. It's your host, Taylor Gannis, and today's episode is a discussion with the Assistant Dean for Environmental Law Studies at George Washington University about environmental law, current and past court cases involving youth, and how to find resources to take on environmental litigation. As mentioned, our guest speaker, Randall S. Abate, is the Assistant Dean for Environmental Law Studies and a professional lecturer in law at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. Prior to joining GW Law in July 2022, he held full-time law teaching positions for three decades at six U.S. law schools. From 2018 to 2022, he served as the inaugural Rechnitz Family and Urban Coast and Institute Endowed Chair in Marine and Environmental Law and Policy, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Sociology, and the director of the Institute for Global Understanding at Monmouth University in New Jersey. His areas of expertise are domestic and international environmental law, climate change law and justice, ocean and coastal law, constitutional law, and animal law. With a focus on climate change law and justice, Dean Abate has lectured and taught courses in more than 20 countries on six continents. He has published six books, including What Can Animal Law Learn from Environmental Law? and Climate Change and the Voiceless, Protecting Future Generations, Wildlife, and Natural Resources, and about 40 law journal articles and book chapters. He holds a BA from the University of Rochester and a JD and MSL from Vermont Law School. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce our guest speaker, Dean Randall S. Abate. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. We're super excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Taylor. It's great to be here. Yeah, so let's get right into it. So what role does environmental law play in the fight for a healthy and equitable future? Yeah, so that's a, that's a broad question, and I want to make sure that our audience is on the same page with the terms that we're going to be using. So environmental law is, is a term I want to define so uh, that, that we move from a, a common foundation here. So, so environmental law refers to a lot of different fields, uh, a lot of different subfields, if you will, of, of how we protect the environment. So, so what most people think about with environmental law is pollution control law. So uh, we have major federal uh, state, uh, federal environmental statutes uh, protecting clean air, clean water, hazardous waste pollution, endangered species protection. Well, that's not really, that's another um, area of, of coverage, but, but pollution, certainly air, water, waste. Then we have natural resources law, which is about protecting our planet in a way that goes by category of resources. So we have laws that protect the ocean. We have laws that protect endangered species. We have laws that protect forests and so forth. Uh, also under the umbrella of environmental law many times is, is the subfield of energy law and, and how we uh, produce our our energy uh, supply, how we how we uh, are able to transmit our energy um, to to the grid, and and all the aspects that go into all, all the business aspects that go into uh, energy production, and how environmental laws intersect with with the production of energy, which is a big issue these days. And then we've got a, a growing area of climate change law, which is considered part of environmental law. We're going to talk a lot about that today. And then we have, uh, and those are, are largely international and and national level laws. And then we have a lot of laws at the state and local level. And one big area there is land use laws. Uh, we, we we don't have federal land use laws. That's controlled at the state and local level. And there's a lot of 
uh, environmental considerations that go into uh, controlling where things can be built and protecting the environment through how we how we uh, allocate land use um, uh, permission. So proceeding from there, you asked about a healthy and equitable future. So those are really two different pieces that I want to separate out. So in terms of a healthy future, our federal pollution control laws have have been effective uh, in that regard. They, they've been around for 50 years. And these laws were focused not on protecting the environment for its own sake. They were focused on protecting human health and safety from the threat of our pollution of the environment. So certainly that has promoted human health. These laws work very well to diminish the threat of pollution on human health and safety. So that's been true for 50 years. Uh, it's unfortunate, however, there's been a gap that these laws are not concerned as much or at all really about protecting the, the resources themselves. Um, and that is now a new wave of initiatives that we're seeing. Uh, one is called the Rights of Nature Movement that, that's looking to protect the, the resources themselves rather than merely the health and safety impacts of pollution on humans. So that connects to the equitable side. So we're those those laws, the federal environmental protection laws, have failed miserably in terms of protecting vulnerable communities. So basically, those laws were working far better in affluent white communities than they were in disproportionately burdened vulnerable communities based on race, um, socioeconomic status, and what have come to be known as fence line communities, uh, and communities that essentially have very limited political and economic resources to fight back when they've got some kind of environmental burden in their backyard. So the environmental justice movement emerged to fight that fight uh, in the late 80s. And that's that's the equitable side. And that's an ongoing challenge that the healthy side, I think we're we're doing better about protecting our interests and in fighting for that healthy future. The equitable piece needs more work. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. And you know, now that we have a little bit of a foundation of what environmental law is and the many different things it encompasses, can you discuss some of the recent environmental court cases that are both ongoing and finished and where youth play a significant role? Certainly. So that's been an area of my scholarship and teaching for for uh, past two decades, really. And um, this is really a, a source of inspiration for um students who are considering pursuing a career in environmental law, uh, cases where, where youth plaintiffs have filed complaints in the court systems and have achieved even some measure of success are, are really inspirational in the sense that the effort to secure the legal victories that they were seeking to secure it was really a a David versus Goliath battle from the start. I mean, the law was not on their side and and it's very difficult to even get into court to bring these claims. So I'll, I'll give you one example of a, of a case in the U.S. and one outside the U.S., although there are dozens. We, we could spend hours just talking about these youth climate justice cases. <clears throat> so, so the one that many of our listeners are probably familiar with is called the Juliana case. In the U.S., this this case has been going on for for about a decade now. It was initially filed against the the Obama administration in an earlier iteration of the case, and basically the 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 theory here uh, brought by youth plaintiffs, represented by an outstanding uh, environmental non governmental organization called Our Children's Trust, um, the 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 nature of the claim here 
which has ripened over time into to really these two basic components. One is seeking to compel the U.S. government to regulate climate change when it had decided not to do so. And the argument here is that there's a theory that the, the youth plaintiffs relied on that's an expansion of an existing legal doctrine called the public trust doctrine, which is about having this, the governments protect very narrow aspects of resources on behalf of the public. So it would be uh, the wet sands in coastal areas and the riverbeds in, in freshwater uh, lakes and rivers. And the argument was that this, this stewardship duty that the government has should be expanded to embrace the atmosphere. So arguing that the government has a duty to protect the atmosphere on behalf of the citizens to ensure that, that we are uh, protected from the, the harsh impacts of, of climate change. So that was obviously a very ambitious legal theory to, to advance in the courts, uh, a, a large expansion of existing law. And then the second piece of their theory is, is equally um, ambitious, and it was looking more from a rights-based perspective. So, so the first aspect of the theory was imposing a higher duty on the government to be a good steward of atmospheric resources to protect the public. The second part of the theory was that these plaintiffs, these youth plaintiffs, are essentially a disproportionately burdened population, and they, they wanted to make a rights-based claim to say that they have a constitutionally protected right to a stable climate system. And the government's failure to protect them um, in, in uh, regulating climate change amounts to a violation of their constitutional right to a stable climate system. And very creatively, their, their argument for where that right is located, it's certainly not in our constitution, um, it's connected to the right in the due process clause, which has been interpreted expansively um, and builds on the reasoning from the case involving uh, the right to same-sex marriage, that basically in the due process clause, there was initially a case that said, there's a right to marriage and how that was initially recognized as a fundamental right that, that um, the people have in the US and then the logic of why we have a right to marry was extended to protect the right to same-sex marriage. And that logic was the, the, the notion that the right to marry is so fundamental to enjoy other freedoms that we enjoy under the Constitution, um, how we engage in society, that it absolutely should extend to same-sex marriage. And so these youth plaintiffs were arguing that the same logic there should apply to the right to a stable climate, that what good are all our all the other constitutional, constitutionally protected liberties that we enjoy, what good are those if we don't have a constitutional right to a stable climate? They're, they're all meaningless, we'll all be dead. So, so that was kind of the logic of, of, again, a very expansive reading of an existing right uh, in, in the law that, that they were seeking to uh, establish. And that case is, is still in the courts. It's been retooled, different theories of, of relief, and it's still pending um, in, a, in a newly formulated way in terms of the, the remedy it's seeking. Uh, outside the U.S., the, the De Justicia case in, uh, in Colombia is, is an, a great example of a victory. You know, the Giuliani case is still you know, working its way and, and has suffered many disappointing setbacks and has not yet secured that ultimate victory of relief. But the, the De Justicia case in, in 
Colombia has. So that was back in 2017, I believe the the the, the court, the high court in Colombia, actually concluded that these plaintiffs, youth plaintiffs, again, that were seeking to compel the the government of Colombia to reduce deforestation in the Colombian Amazon to zero, and and the year before the case was filed. An already high rate of deforestation had increased by about 40% deforestation in the Colombian Amazon. So, so the youth plaintiffs were absolutely fed up and, and felt they had no choice but to file this lawsuit and compel the government to take better care, be a better steward of the of the biodiversity in the Colombian Amazon. And so, remarkably, on a, a, a wide range of creative legal theories, the, the youth plaintiffs prevailed in that case. And they not only prevailed, but the, the the court was so convinced by the logic of what they were seeking um, that the court, in its own right, the plaintiffs didn't even ask for this. The court determined that the Colombian Amazon should be granted legal personhood, uh, essentially the, the the capacity to sue on its own behalf to protect its interests. Of course, humans would have to sue on behalf of the uh, non-human resource uh, to to protect its interest in court. But that that's a remarkable embrace in that uh, in that court decision of the need for what the youth plaintiffs were seeking to be protected. And long story short, that even with that ambitious court ruling, here we are seven years later, and and the the decision is still in the process of being implemented. There are major political and financial drivers that are that are preventing that ambitious decision from being implemented. So it sounds like these court cases can go on for a long time and there's a lot of waiting. So can you give us a brief overview of what that process is like and like from start to finish? How do we begin? How do we end? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's remarkably complicated, remarkably lengthy. Um, and so I, I just want to hit some highlights about this category of cases, which is strategic litigation and the sort of challenges that are encountered along the way. So really the first challenge is finding the right plaintiffs and the right defendants. So, so if you're concerned about climate justice, you have to be very careful to make sure you've got the right harmed victims, if you will, to be the plaintiffs in the case. And courts have been very, very strict about um, making sure that the law is granting a remedy to appropriate plaintiffs who deserve that recognition that, that they are, are somehow uniquely harmed in a way that the law needs to look out for. So to, just to give you an example, um, how difficult this can be to get the right plaintiffs. There, there was a case uh, in Switzerland that was brought by, um, you know, the, the, the reference for the case is senior women. Um, and, and there's a, a Swiss word for it that I can't pronounce. But this case was brought by a group of elderly women who allege that they were disproportionately burdened. And you can't argue that they are disproportionately burdened by many of the effects of climate change. The elderly have many more challenges with, with the impacts of climate change. For instance, excessive heat. They're much more vulnerable to excessive heat. Um, so the the court determined that that those plaintiffs, elderly women, were not something not not a group that could be recognized as as essentially entitled to relief on the basis of that that status. That that's not something the law was going to recognize in in that litigation. So it was a challenge of having the right plaintiffs before the court. Certainly, youth plaintiffs because they are very young, they have this disproportionate legal burden that 
elderly women do not have, and that is they don't have the right to vote, these, these youth plaintiffs below eight, the age of 18, for instance. So that's another issue that that makes youth climate litigation work as well as it does because you've you've got something the law can recognize as a as a disproportionately burdened group that that they lack the legal rights that that adults have over the 18, age of 18 and then you've got a whole nother class of potential plaintiffs that are often referenced in these cases the future generations yet to be born uh, are also referenced in a lot of this youth climate litigation uh, and they are certainly disproportionately burdened. We we have to do our best to make sure they they are inheriting a habitable planet. They they didn't ask for a planet that was trashed, and and they're going to be born into it without any kind of legal protections at their disposal if we don't take care to to do the best job we can in being stewards. So defendants are also challenging. So there have been a lot of lawsuits against governments. So governments are, are an easy target and many suits against governments have worked. The challenge though, is that this is a really new area of law and traditionally um, more so outside the US than in the US. Traditionally, you do not fight city hall, so to speak. Lawsuits against the government are often not even permitted, let alone successful. So these cases have had to be very creative about what the government had a duty to do and how they failed to fulfill a duty and then you've got some traction to make a legal argument stick. And that's challenging in many instances when, you, when it comes to climate change. Because essentially, you've got governments that have a, discretion, a discretionary um, status with respect to climate change. It's, you, you've elected these government officials to do what they think is best to regulate climate change. So it seems odd that you can come in after the fact and say, well, you didn't do that well enough, and I want to sue you for it. But these cases are succeeding nonetheless, as unusual as that is for for um, for citizens to be able to, to tell their government they need to do a better job, even though the governments are the elected officials who have been put in power to do that job. And it's within their discretion to, to, to determine how to do the job. These cases have still been successful. So what's been a little more challenging is those corporate accountability suits, although those are gaining traction recently as well. So when you're seeking to sue a, a major corporation that has contributed significantly to global climate change. Um, there are a lot of challenging causation issues and a lot of legal technicalities that can enable them to, to avoid responsibility, even though there's no dispute in the science about how much they've contributed to, to the global climate crisis. There's actually statistics that say there's fewer than 100 multinational corporations worldwide that are responsible for about two thirds of global climate change, which is remarkable. You would think we really need to make progress fast there about, about making those large corporate actors accountable when, when so few entities are causing so much damage to the planet um, and profiting considerably from it. Um, so that's one challenge. The, the next challenge, not surprisingly, and those who watch legal dramas understand this basic premise, you've got to gather your evidence. And a lot of that is marshalling your experts to, to support that there's some kind of causal link between what those defendants, whether they're government actors or private actors, what they did or didn't do, and how that led to your harm as the plaintiffs, whoever you are. And that's a very challenging phase of the process. You can have great legal arguments and you just might not have the scientific support you need to make that causal link stick in, in a legal proceeding. And there's been a lot of 
uh, setbacks there with these cases. Um, although that's been getting better lately because there's a new field called climate attribution science, which is which is making those causal links tighter based on the advances in, in, in climate change science. And then you've got a third hurdle that's a big focus of these cases um, on the legal side, and that is establishing standing to bring your case. So that means, are you the right party to bring this case? And this has been a big challenge for climate justice plaintiffs. Um, what often happens is that you, you allege that you've been harmed and no one's questioning that you've been harmed. Um, but the question is, are you legally entitled to be someone who brings a lawsuit to seek recovery for that harm? So an example of where that has failed um, is because standing has three components. It's not just that you've been injured. There's also the element that the, your injury has to be causally connected to what the defendant did or didn't do. And that, that can be very challenging with climate change harms. And then another big obstacle is known as redressability. This means you've been injured and you've established that your injury is causally connected to the defendant's action or inaction. A lot of cases get thrown out because what can the court do for you is, is the obstacle to, to be able to establish standing, to, to be able to establish you are the right party to bring this case. And many of the cases fail because courts will say, this is a matter for Congress, or this is a matter for the executive branch. You're, you're complaining about climate change impacts and courts are not the forum to regulate climate change. That's, that's something Congress and the executive need to do. The, the executive branch is involved in international relations um, and climate change is an international uh, issue. Um, so that's been an issue for not only standing, but also what's known as jurisdiction. So even if the party has the ability to bring the claim, cases are often dismissed because courts will say um, the court does not have jurisdiction over this. This this is something that needs to be taken to Congress or the executive. So the fourth uh, claim, if you've survived all of those daunting hurdles, is preparing for trial. And, and the causation burden is even higher at trial than it is when you're trying to establish standing to be in court. So uh, these cases have faced all these burdens, and it's remarkable the, the few cases that have been able to proceed to trial, uh, just how long it's taken and how hard they've had to work just to get to that stage. Yeah, it sounds like there's definitely a lot of barriers that people face just to, like you said, bring their their case to court. Um, so here, you know, we've established that there are some major gaps in environmental law that are disproportionately burdening certain communities. And when it comes to environmental harms and seeking justice to rectify those harms, there are the barriers that there are many barriers that communities face, like financial burdens. And like you just discussed, having standing and all the, preparing for trial, all these different things. So how can people who are currently experiencing environmental harms in their communities and are looking for ways to right these injustices, get the resources and support they need to take legal action. Yes, well, the, well, the good news there is that, that there's a lot of effort in this regard um, going on across the U.S. and really around the world that um, environmental justice, as I mentioned, has been around since the late 80s as a, as a field of law and a field of um, advocacy. And now, over those past three decades or so, 
there's been a proliferation of environmental justice clinics being established at law schools around the country. And I'm proud to say that GW Law just established um, a mini clinic on environmental justice just this spring. So these clinics are available to these communities as resources to, to serve as their advocates um, to use the court system to get them some kind of relief that they would not otherwise be able to achieve because of those barriers, um, because they can't overcome the the political realities, because they don't have the the uh, financial resources to do it themselves. So those clinics have been a great resource and have achieved remarkable victories. Um, and then, of course, you've got a lot of public interest environmental organizations that focus on this work that that receive external funding and. Uh, from their from their members and from other donors uh, to do the work that they do, and so one of those as I mentioned earlier, our Children's Trust is a is a an organization that is bringing this youth climate litigation all over the country uh, in all fifty states and against the federal government, and they are partnering with similar organizations all over the world to bring these cases these these uh, youth climate justice cases in the court system. So, so it's about being aware of those resources. They're easy to find on the internet. Um, climate justice litigation, youth climate activism, uh, it's, it's all over the internet. And, uh, and, and these communities should reach out to some sort of legal expert and environmental justice lawyer um, to, to talk about their, their, their community's needs and, and, and what options might be available to them. And and that's a that's an important first step. Their help is available. Love to hear that. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. I think it's so important that people have access to the resources and know where the resources are. Because even myself, like I took and I only took two environmental law classes, and I was like, well, how how do people like actually? Because I wasn't going to be a lawyer. It was just for fun classes. Um, and I was like how how would I go about this if I wanted to actually like have a court case like I mean I wouldn't just myself but but if I wanted to start and start somewhere so it's great to know that those resources are available um so what advice would you give to young people out there who are interested in getting involved in an environmental court case but don't know where to start like like myself <laughs> yeah that's uh it's it's a, a daunting challenge but it's one that I encourage um youth to explore because this is this is something that's gaining traction um and it's it's also something that you know the more the cases that are brought the the more it's easier the next time for for that next plaintiff to to try because we're we're building this foundation that that is a you know one block at a time to 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 build the castle and and there's been a lot of successes in in just the past five years alone that that have enabled these cases to proceed more effectively. So it's it's very much um, you know for youth climate litigation it's very much what I've already said the the uh, reaching out to organizations like our Children's Trust and and wherever you are in your educational path there's there's opportunities to to do volunteer work for a lot of these organizations which is a great way to get a feel for for the type of work um and uh and then i mentioned the, the rights of nature movement so so it's not just about bringing cases on behalf of youth plaintiffs there's a lot of great work going on to protect 
the rights of the planet itself. And, and this rights of nature movement is spearheaded by a group called the, the Earth Law Center, um, an organization based in Colorado. Um, our Children's Trust is based in Oregon. Um, and uh, But they have advocates working for them all over the country and all over the world, um, addressing different aspects of, of the challenges and how to achieve success. Some, some of these issues are brought in courts and some of them are legislative advocacy issues. Uh, there's lots of, and some of them are more grassroots community engagement. Um, and then you've got uh, a related field called animal rights um, and, and protecting uh, vulnerable species, uh, exploited animals in a variety of uh, aspects of, of how we engage with animals in, in our society, food production, entertainment, uh, research. And uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund is a great organization that's doing a lot of uh, litigation and advocacy to, to protect animals uh, and, and environmental aspects of how animals are harmed. For instance, uh, industrial animal agriculture and the, the animal welfare and environmental concerns associated and climate change concerns associated with, with uh, industrial animal agriculture. So there's all kinds of ways to do good in, in this space, depending on your area of interest. And uh, it's it's easy to to locate what these organizations are doing and, and reach out. Great. Yeah. And for anyone interested, I'll definitely plug in a few in the description of the podcast so you can see and take take a look. Um, so just kind of following up on that question, what advice would you give to young people interested in pursuing environmental law? I know you mentioned there's volunteering. Um, is there any other ways that people who might not be college age yet or who are in college and exploring, what advice would you give them? Well, this is the favorite part of my job. And, and I do this week in and week out. Um, I've, I've talked to individuals interested in environmental law um, as young as 10 or 12. Um, so I, it, it's just been inspiring to see how engaged youth are in, in environmental issues. And, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who can hold up their end of the conversation about, about how they might want to prepare themselves for, for considering uh, educational opportunities and career paths in uh, environmental law and, and related fields. So I'm, I'm regularly answering emails. Um, I'll, I'll certainly, you know, provide the, my, my LinkedIn contact, my email. Um, I encourage people to, to follow me on LinkedIn because I provide a lot of resources and updates on these issues through my LinkedIn account, but I'm happy to engage directly by email and have Zoom conversations, just one-on-one -on -one conversations about what people are interested in learning about and, and how I can be a resource for them. I do this every week with college students and law students, depending on where they are in their career paths to, to help them understand how to, how to make a difference in the, in the field. Um, so there are challenges and, and I'm glad you asked that. Um, there are certainly challenges. Um, the financial burdens, I think are, are probably the most daunting that, that many people will face in wanting to do this kind of work for a career path, because it may not be surprising to hear that it won't pay you as well as a corporate uh, law firm job. <laughs> so, but I always tell um, students that it's a privilege to do what you want to do every day. And, and that, that, as they say, is priceless. And and I, I never compromised my values on, on the work that I wanted to do. And I never got rich from it. Um, but I never starved either. Uh, I, I think pursuing a legal career will enable you to 
uh, do the work that you think is most important and and be able to to have a reliable income so you won't have uh, debt collectors following you the, your your whole life. Uh, another challenge is um, you know the cost of legal education and that's something I, I wish I had mentors helping me with when I applied to law school. so I I didn't get a penny of financial aid and I had um, a lot of debt when I graduated and it took me 14 years to pay off that law school debt. And while I was earning modest salaries doing public interest and educational work for my whole career. Um, so it's very important to be strategic, very important to apply to law schools that are going to be positioned to offer you full or, or half scholarships um, and be thinking about what it means to, to take on those financial burdens. And I, I see too often that students go to the highest ranked school they can get into, incur a huge amount of debt and feel they have no choice but to work for big law firms. And even though they want to do public interest work and that, that breaks my heart. Uh, you, you should have planned better. You, you have to be very strategic and, and ultimately um, enable yourself to do what you love and, and to make a difference. And it's, uh, it, it doesn't happen by chance. You, you really do have to plan and talk to people who can guide you. Um, the other issue is the the you know kind of the highs and lows of this of this area of work. Um, I knew when I was thinking about law school, I, I knew I couldn't do criminal law. I knew I couldn't do family law. I, I knew it, it would just be too gut wrenching for me. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night from you know the way my clients were were being harmed in in, in many ways that that would would be hard for me to to just um, move on as, as if it's not affecting me emotionally. Uh, and there's a lot of those emotional highs and lows with environmental work, although those are ones that I'm, I think, able to process because the victories are so significant. Um, they really energize you to keep fighting the good fight. And with that knowledge that your efforts make a difference for the planet and for affected communities, they help you overcome those lows. And the, the lows really demand more patience and persistence than you ever thought possible. Um, there's so much to accomplish in uh, in this area and so little time in, in protecting the planet and vulnerable communities that it, on a daily basis can feel overwhelming and, and insurmountable. And you need to engage in self-care and, and work with your, your colleagues and, and just feel that sense of collective effort that, you know, you've got a lot of people with you trying to do the right thing. And uh, it's it's never easy, but it's incredibly rewarding, and uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way than than doing what really makes a difference in the world and and what what inspires me to 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 do my best. Yeah, you know, talking about what inspires you now, what brings you hope in the environmental movement? Because I know, you know, we like you were talking about before when the court cases not we're still waiting. It's not going how it was planned you know there's definitely those lows but what gives you that hope to bounce back after something like that yeah it, it's it's the generation z's response to the lows that that really gives me hope so so what what breaks my heart and and what's now even part of the foundation for a lot of this climate litigation that the youth plaintiffs are bringing is this brand new reality of climate anxiety that on a day-to-day -day basis uh, the youth of today experience this sense of loss of hope for their future because of the threat of climate change, that that this idea of climate anxiety is a field. There, there are 
specialists in the healthcare industry who who do nothing but talk to climate anxiety patients and and help them adjust. And so this was actually part of the grounds of a recent climate uh, justice case brought by Our Children's Trust that had youth and indigenous plaintiffs and part of their allegation of harm, apart from the physical harm from from climate change impacts, was this this notion of climate anxiety, how how their their sense of culture, their sense of place, their sense of hope had been completely compromised by by the, the state of Montana's um, uh, pursuit of a an energy system in their state that was very fossil fuel intensive, and and the the allegation was that they have a uh, a state constitution that that has a constitutional right to a uh, a clean and healthy environment in in the, the the state constitution, and they were arguing that the state's pursuit of this fossil fuel intensive energy mix for the state uh, was amounted to a violation of that constitutionally protected right. Um, and so climate anxiety is real. And what's the best thing you can do about climate anxiety? Sue the government to to diminish the effect of your climate anxiety and get them to do what they should have been doing years ago, which is be on that path toward a just transition, embracing more of a clean and renewable energy mix because the, the resources, the financial and scientific and technological resources are available to to begin down that path. And we're, we've been very slowly tiptoeing down that path in the U.S. compared to other countries that are way ahead of us in this transition to clean and renewable energy. So, so yeah, it, it's about drawing power from your from your grief and 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 from your losses and and i'm really impressed with with how that's happening um and that that gives me hope the fact that these very moonshot ambitious cases are actually gaining traction in the court is is what gives me hope for how the law can make the world a better place that you have to be creative you have to be persistent you have to find a way to make your challenges into opportunities and Generation Z is doing that, um, and and I, I'm just so excited to be able to work with them and educate and inspire them to do the best they can to protect themselves and the generations that follow them. Um, and I'm I'm very encouraged by the numbers. So at GW Law, the entering class last year completed a survey that all entering classes complete on the areas of law that they hope to practice after graduation. And more than one third of the entering class said they wanted environmental law and nothing could make me happier as the dean of the environmental law program. Um, that encourages me a great deal. Uh, just last semester, I taught an introduction to environmental law class that had 79 students. And I'm convinced that's the largest introduction to environmental law class in the country. I've taught that class for for three decades at uh, several of the law schools and I never had a class over 50. So 79 was was quite inspiring and and to know that there's that level of interest gives me hope that there's going to be a lot of very effective environmental lawyers uh, entering the ranks and doing great work to protect planet and uh, vulnerable communities. Yeah, if there's one thing Gen Z we're doing, it's we're stepping up. <laughs> and that's <laughs> good to hear them both like grassroots and in environmental law as well. Um, so is there anything else that you wanted to bring up or any last thoughts that you have? Yeah, I would say that I, I really am not just saying it for sport. I really do encourage listeners to this 
podcast to to reach out to me with the the information you'll be provided in the the podcast notes and uh i i really do take pleasure in informing um people who want to know more about these issues and um joining my program if that's where they are in their educational journey um and and being a a mentor and a resource uh remotely i've got these mentees all over the world now who who just reach out and ask questions and advice and and, and for inspiration and in, in pursuing what they're trying to do uh in this in this field so um i i really want to encourage that and uh and i also want to encourage that um you know, I've I've been in the legal field now in my fourth decade, and uh, it's it's something that has a lot of complexity and a lot of technicalities. But I pursued a legal career because I had faith that the law can achieve the right outcomes, and I think this area of law more than any that I've experienced in my career, the idea that you can use the law to have protections for for those who have been disproportionately burdened like the planet or communities and offer remedies through creative and persistent advocacy that to me is just a wonderful opportunity that's that's a great way to spend a career it will be challenging it will be long hours it will be frustrating and you'll you'll want to give up many many times but i think you look at the track record of what's happened in this area of law and uh, 10 years ago, the cases that are winning or going to trial now, people would have literally laughed at you if if you mentioned bringing that kind of lawsuit 10 years ago. Um, so that that really gives me hope. And, and I want to pass that hope along to those that feel like that's something they want to spend their career doing. And that, there is one more thing. Uh, I'm, I'm assembling a uh, symposium at, at GW Law on March 27th and 28th that is meant to educate, inform, inspire on these very issues. Uh, and there's, there's even going to be a panel that's exclusively uh, consisting of youth climate activists who have been involved in these cases. They've been youth plaintiffs in some of these major efforts, and they've been youth community organizers on climate justice issues. So if you're in the D.C. area, it would be very uh once in a lifetime kind of opportunity to to come out to be a part of that in person. We are going to have it in hybrid format. So wherever you are in the world, you'll be able to tune in um, when you uh, register on the the event page that I'll share in the podcast notes for for the event on, on March 27th and 28th. Thank you for all of this. And I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and sharing your knowledge and experiences. I'm sure everyone listening will too. So I will definitely make sure to put everything in the podcast description for anyone interested in reaching out or accessing any of the resources we talked about today. Uh, so thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Taylor. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalists. As mentioned in the podcast, if you're interested in attending the event or learning more from some of the resources, definitely check out the description of this podcast because they'll all be linked there. Well, until next time, always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.